Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks. If you're interested in Walter's music, walterparks.com is a good place to look. I love Walter's songwriting and his his playing, and and I know you will too. Thank you, Davine Dial, for all the good work you do holding the radio station together. That's WPVM-FM, if you didn't know. And Davine is the one who lets us do these shows and we're able to broadcast them all over the world because of Davine Dial's support. So thank you, Davine, for, for all of that. And if you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. Nave at jamesnave.com and jamesnave.com. Of course, is my website as well if you'd like to know more about what I'm up to. And oh, yes, if you'd like to join me and my creative partner, Allegra Houston, every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and noon Eastern Time, we have a, a writing circle called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. And we gather on Zoom and people write and read their work. It's a writing exploration and a bit of an open mic. Sometimes it's really a rather great open mic because people do read their work imaginativestorm.com if you'd like to to join us on saturday morning the door is always open anybody can come invite your friends if you feel so moved imaginativestorm.com so you've been listening to this show before i hope and if you have been listening i i have a range of guests some people i've known only for a, a, a month or a week or maybe even a couple of days. They'll pop on a Zoom call and I'll invite them to come and get to know each other on air. Other times I have people whom I've known for quite a while. Today I have somebody on this call. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Torden. And she goes by Liz, so we'll we'll know her as Liz. But Dr. Elizabeth Torden is her her full name and that's what you see when you go into her office. And the reason I have invited Liz to come on this show is because she's been my family practice doctor for as long as I can remember. And she's fabulous, terrific. And I, I, I'll never give it up until I give up somewhere down the line because she, she helps me stay healthy. And she helps a lot of people in Asheville stay healthy because she pays attention to the needs of her patients in a way that few physicians do. And so I thought it would be fun to have Liz come on the call and come on the show and just talk about her work. So Dr. Elizabeth Torden, who goes by Liz, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Well, thank you very much for that opening and that welcome. It's a pleasure to be here on this end of the spectrum being questioned by you instead of questioning you <laughs> during our visits. Well, you know, we've seen each other quite a bit over the years, and we only see each other once or twice a year when I come in for my physical, or maybe if I have a little bit of a health problem along the way, mm -hmm. I always am able to pop in and see you. And also, I've always appreciated that you will respond to any of my phone calls. Unlike some physicians out there in this big wide world, you actually do pick up the phone and call back and say, what's going on? How can I help? How are you? And when I first met you, you were working at a practice 
in Asheville, and it was a rather large practice. And then when I got the news that you were going out on your own, I was happy to see you do that. And I also decided to follow you and leave the practice that I had been visiting where you worked and, and continue on with you. So I would like to start this by just having you give our listeners an overview of what makes your work so appealing to people like me. Because like I said, you do call me and you'll do that within 24 hours. Most physicians don't do that. Why are you able to do that? Tell us a little bit about that story. Well, that was a long journey and it took me a long time to leave the mold because we're trained in a certain mold and the way the health system is set up with insurance companies kind of dictating the need to secure enough income from insurance companies, you tend to have to see a lot more people in the regular practice. So most physicians are bound to work as fast as possible, as efficient as possible. Other practices, the way they're set up, require physicians to be a lot more busy. It took me a long time to realize that I didn't really fit the mold and I was tired of being yelled at by my superiors for taking too long with patients, covering too many problems in one visit because I had trouble deciphering and keeping a whole human being in sections, supposed to see the whole person and everything that their lives entail that affect their health. And you can't get that in 15 minutes. It takes time to figure out all the components that might be affecting a particular problem they have. If you don't give them the time, you can miss a lot and you can misunderstand. You can go down the wrong path and be treating something that's not going to help them. So I was always running behind, not keeping up my quota. Reimbursements were always an issue with insurance companies because they don't, they don't value time. They value quick, easy answers and moving people through and dealing with one problem at a time. And I just, I really had struggled with that for all my career. My husband encouraged me to pursue direct primary care. It's outside of the system. You just don't deal with insurance companies. Then they don't dictate your time. You set your own time schedule. I set aside at least an hour or more with my patients when I see them, because I know that's how long it takes me. I have older patients. They have a lot of issues going on. Many of them are on multiple medications that interact with each other. They see multiple specialists I have to coordinate with and understand what's going on with them. It takes a lot more effort. Uh, but I, because I'm on my own and I charge a fee for the annual access to me, um, I can work with a much smaller patient population. Most family physicians have over 3,000 patients on their panel. I have 400. So I can call you back. I can recognize your voice when I pick up the phone. I don't have a huge organization. It's me and my nurse. And you know Denise well. She's she's like my second hand here. And she knows my patients well. She knows when they really sound off and will tell me that. We are a good team. She's the funny one and I'm the serious one, but we work well together and my patients appreciate her humor and her listening and understanding them as much as they appreciate my input. Again, I don't have a huge overhead, so I can afford to charge the same amount as people would pay for cable TV for the year. So if you can afford cable, you can afford your healthcare. And I feel like that's accessible and I think it's reasonable and I can spend as much time as I need with my patients, be accessible. That's the whole point. I think 
a lot of people get lost in the shuffle. They can't get their doctors on the phone. They can only get a nurse or a recording and they have to leave a message and then it takes a while before they get back to them. If you've ever played telephone, you know how it ends up being a completely different story. So even when my nurse tells me something, I tend to call back my patients to find out exactly if I can get more information and fill it out a little bit more and understand what's going on. I can sometimes help them by phone or video. The pandemic taught us that we could do a lot by video and Zoom now. I prefer it in person. I can actually examine you. All else fails and I can help you without actually examining you or just looking at you or watching how you're breathing and moving. And you can get a lot of information from those kinds of details as well. And I enjoy my job. I didn't want to give it up. I was really being stressed and ready to throw in the towel way before my time to retire from this kind of a practice. So I spent a lot of time getting here. I didn't want to waste all that education and effort. So this was a really good answer for me to start my own practice. And it's called Direct Primary Care. Named it after me so my patients know where to find me if they wanted. So the Direct Primary Care requires a yearly fee. And I remember when you first told me you were going to do that and you told me you were leaving the practice I was involved in with you and was happy to have you there. And I was using my insurance, which I have had all my life to right. to pay for this. And I've kept it. I'm, I do creative work. Right. And so I've kept my insurance on my own. And now I have uh, Medicare and a supplement. So I'm right. still fine with the insurance. So when you said, I'm going to be leaving my practice here and I'm moving to my own private practice and I'll be charging a yearly fee. My first thought was, I don't know if I can afford that. That's a lot. I have to pay all this insurance and oh my God, you know, add one more to that. And it's just too much of a burden. So I took a year off from you and I signed up for the Medicare and went to a new doctor. Don't remember what her name was. She was in her thirties in a practice in Asheville mm -hmm. and I had an appointment and got a couple of calls from the office and the office said, well, you know, you have to reschedule. She's busy down at the hospital. So I rescheduled, rescheduled. And this was my first Medicare uh, examination. So it was supposed to be the best one. I had been trained by you to know what a good examination was, right? So mm -hmm. I went down expecting to have the same experience. This woman walked in and no, no shadow on her profession or her work. She looked at me, she listened a bit, didn't touch me very much. You know, you'll hit the face and look in the ears and all the stuff that one would expect a doctor to do, hit the knees to see if they hop up, that sort of thing. <laughs> and she gave me maybe 15 minutes. And I thought that was the introduction. And she said, okay, fine, thank you very much. And uh, you can check out at the desk. And I, I said, is that it? She said, yeah, that's your physical, you're fine. And off she went. I couldn't have been more stunned. And I thought, oh, wow, Dr. Twarden's fee is minimal compared to the service she gives compared to this. So I called Denise, your nurse, up the next day and said, do you still have room? And she said, yes, you could come. And this was early in the game but yeah. when you were getting established. So you did have a little bit of room. I think you, you now have a, a waiting list. Yeah. So I was thrilled to be able to get in and come back and have those longer physicals. I know you've spent a couple of hours with me more than yeah. once, just trying to make sure that everything is in order. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about the value of that a bit? I've given you my sense of the value, but from your point mm -hmm. of view as the physician, 
why is that so valuable to people? And why is it really a minimal cost? As you said, the same cost as mm -hmm. television almost. Yeah. Well, I, I look at this um, as we all need some kind of insurance for the very expensive bankrupting kinds of expenses that you cannot predict. We're all human. You can get into an accident. You could have some event or some catastrophic or horrible new diagnosis that takes a lot of money out of you and can bankrupt you if you don't have insurance. And that's an added financial stress. So for those kinds of things and for expensive imaging studies or surgeries you might need, um, accidents that you have or whatever, that's where insurance is really important. And I don't try to replace insurance. I'm not an insurance company. I consider my care kind of routine maintenance. I'm trying to teach people about their bodies, how to stay healthy, how to stay out of the hospital as best as we can. Because even with our best intentions, things happen, life happens. And there are things that are not in our control. I understand that and I appreciate the bigger scope of that. I feel like my cost is routine maintenance. So when I have auto insurance, I use it for, if I get in an accident, somebody hits me, I hit somebody, somebody gets injured, my car gets destroyed. But when I go for an oil change or change my tires, I pay for it. Your insurance doesn't pay for that. So I figure this is this, a similar kind of thing. Direct primary care is your preventive doctor who takes time to know you. From my earliest trainings, you know, at, I, I was drawn to family medicine because it appreciated the whole person, the whole body, the family interactions, the relationships that matter to you. And affect your life, affect how you feel. And when you're feeling poorly, you're not taking good care of yourself. So all of those things matter. They may not be physical, but they all affect your physical being. And so I feel it's really critical to have somebody who knows you and takes the time to know you and can tell when things are not right, even when you're not ready to talk about it. Sometimes I have had patients who come in and I could just tell from their demeanor something major has happened. And that's Denise's talent too. She she gets that general picture and can tell me something's off. It's, it's not right. And she's often very right. I find her partnership and her insights very helpful when I'm taking care of my patients. And again, we've been a team for now 15 years almost. So we know the people we take care of and we take time to know them. And that's the beauty of having a direct primary care practice where you can dictate how much time you spend with somebody and how much they divulge. And it takes time because not everybody trusts you. I mean, some people want to just be in and out because they're used to that kind of training and they come in and they, hour, it takes you an hour. It depends on what you tell me. If you say yes to all my questions, it's going to take more than an hour to kind of scope out what's going on. If you say no to everything, then then yeah, you're great and healthy and I can get done with you in 45 minutes less. It's up to you. But if you tell me more, I'm going to want more and get flush it out to figure out uh, if there's something I need to do about it or you need to do about it that can help you with. Well, it's interesting when you talk about Denise, because I've always enjoyed her. She can read her audience no matter who comes through the door she can read them and she sets a tone with each person. She's done that with me and mm -hmm. she knows exactly how far to go in the very friendly, open way. And I just realized talking to you, that's a diagnostic tool. She gets me to drop my guard and really tell her what I'm thinking, where mm -hmm. I'm coming from. 
And then she reads those little nuances. So if uh-huh. my smile's not as crisp as usual when I walk through the door, uh-huh. she notices that. And none of it really is casual with her, even though she just appears almost, oh, well, well, welcome. Good to see you. Have, have it. Hope you've been doing well. But there's something uh-huh. underneath that that really works. Speaking of training, uh-huh. you started a long time ago in this journey as a physician. Can you tell us a bit about what, drew you to it when did you know you wanted to take this route because i know you've also told me you've done some international work you've traveled you've been a lot of places so how did that all happen for you to end you up in Asheville in this little private practice i started out as a journalist when i was in college i realized that i really liked to write i liked anthropology i liked studying people Um, I was very shy, was not really as outgoing or comfortable talking to anyone and everyone. Um, But when I discovered journalism, it was a job where you were paid to talk to people. And I loved listening to stories. I loved listening to people. It just gave me the license to go up to anybody and say, hey, I'm a reporter and I'm doing a story on such and such. And I'd like to talk to you about how you feel about this. So it gave me the courage to just go up to anybody and talk to anybody about anything that I was working on. It taught me a lot about people. Um, I spent about 11 years working for a, a daily newspaper, the Detroit News. I talked to homeless people and I talked to presidents. It didn't matter. Everybody had a perspective and something to say, and many times a valuable perspective that didn't always have a voice. So I really enjoyed that job and I loved the writing part of it. It just became less fulfilling, I would say, because you never knew who was reading you, if they understood what you were saying. It was a fun job for a young person like myself at that time in my life. It really opened my eyes to a lot of circumstances I might never have otherwise Faced. I mean, I've been in the room with a murderer right after a murder happened. I mean, I was in Detroit. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on way back then and, and still now. It wasn't until I actually took a sabbatical, I got a Rotary Fellowship uh, when I was 30 years old. I always wanted to live in another country. That anthropology piece of me wanted to always be immersed in another culture that was very different. When they asked me where I wanted to go, I tried to find English speaking parts of the world where I could at least get around and meet people, but were very different. So I chose either parts of Africa uh, where I, I also learned some French through my high school and college. So I thought I could go to some of the French speaking African nations and, and get around or India where they were English speaking for the most part. Um, and I got to go to India. I spent a year in Calcutta. The Rotary Fellowship didn't quite work out the way I had expected. Um, I was supposed to study because you were, as a student, you could be there on a longer visa. It took forever to clear up the uh, catch-22 of if you weren't already a student, you couldn't get the visa. You couldn't get the visa if you weren't already a student. So there was a lot of running around. And I finally, after a year, got some diplomat on that end of the spectrum to get that arranged and clear the pathway for me to travel there. Once I got there, the universities were always on strike or the professors or the students were on strike. There were no classes. I realized that the way they learn there is that they are given reading lists and they spend time in the libraries. And I'm like, hmm, I'm here for a year. There's no way I'm going to be sitting in a library. This is not my way of experiencing India. (laughs) So I stumbled upon various 
volunteer programs. I met some other travelers who were volunteering for a physician from Wales, Dr. Jack Prager. He was a former farmer who became a doctor and then worked in Bangladesh, was kicked out of Bangladesh when he uncovered an adoption ring where they were taking children and having them sent to families abroad and telling their actual biological families that they were going to be educated and then come home, but they were disappeared, basically. They were being actually adopted away. He, so he was kicked out of Bangladesh, moved right into Calcutta right next door, um, wasn't allowed to have an office, so he opened a sidewalk clinic. And he'd been doing that for years when I got there, and he had nurses from all over the world helping him out on the sidewalk. And I was invited to come and see what they do. And I didn't have any training. I didn't have any medical stuff. And I just like, ooh, it was really squeamish. I was like, oh my God. But something drew me to come back the next day. And I did. And then they put me to work. And I just took direction from the nurses about how to clean wounds. Basically, that's what they were doing. The doctor was seeing other patients near and he had his own little hut that he had constructed every day and would break down every day. And he was there from morning till afternoon and people would just line up and we would see whoever and I would just take direction from the nurses. And there was this one fellow who had leprosy and he had not felt when something burned and scalded his hand. You could see the bones through. I mean, it had, it had burned right through. And they were cleaning the wound, keeping it clean, keeping it flushed. And eventually I worked up to taking care of him most of the time when I was there. Over the time that I was there, over like nine months that I volunteered there, I watched as his skin healed over and covered the bone. And I thought, wow, I didn't know your body could do that. And I helped, but I didn't even know what I was doing and I was helping. So I thought, wow, this is amazing. I love this. I was hooked. I loved watching uh, whether you're helping or not, whether somebody's getting something out of your interaction with them or not. And we didn't do a lot of talking. Uh, these were very impoverished people. They didn't have much, you know, they weren't comfortable necessarily talking about their lives. And it wasn't a place where they would divulge a lot, but you got used to working with all kinds of people and just watching them receive your care, respectful care. And I would see them sometimes later on begging in the streets as I was walking through Calcutta and I would acknowledge them. I would give them water. And when I got back home from that year, it really did change my life. I always warn people about travel that way is to be prepared to, to come back a different person. And I just realized I didn't really want to be a, just a journalist for the rest of my life. I value journalism. I think it's a very important field. I think that we are losing some of our better concepts because of all this false information and attacks on journalists for creating fake news breaks my heart when I hear those kinds of things because I know how hard I worked as a journalist to get all sides of a story. You never listen to just one person. You always verify. You always get other background. You try to be as objective as possible and not insert yourself as much as you possibly can. When I see these attacks on journalists and, and all this attacks of fake news, it really breaks my heart. But as much as I valued that, I felt like I had a different calling and I started exploring whether I wanted to be a nurse or a doctor. My sister's a nurse. She said, oh, you'll be unhappy. You'll really want to be more in charge. You won't want to be taking orders from somebody. And I said, well, I don't know. Nursing is a lot faster. It's a year. You know, med school is like, I've got to go to pre-med and med school and then, you know, residency. I'll be 40 by the time I get there. And I was lucky enough to 
run into a counselor that despite all my doubts and hesitations about the time it would take me to get to where I wanted to be as a physician, she just said, you know, start, take one step at a time, take a biology class to see how you do. If you do good, keep going and you'll see where you end up. She was right. In a year and a half, I got all my pre-med courses done. I was still working full-time at the newspaper. I had an evening shift so I could go to morning classes and do my evening shift. And it was a rough couple of years there, but I got it all done. And then the next thing I knew, I was applying to med schools. Then again, I was a little hesitant. I was in my young 30s. I'm thinking, who's going to invest in a 30-year-old going back to med school? Because it's going to take us four years and then another four years to train. That's a lot of time and investment to put into somebody who might have a shorter career because I'm older. (laughs) On the contrary, I found a lot of interest in people who realized that I was motivated. I really wanted to be here. I wasn't some kid from a family of doctors who wanted to send all their kids to be a doctor and that's all they knew. And they didn't really want to be there. I really wanted this. And it was something different that I was committed to. And I wanted to be the kind of doctor that could make a difference. And that evolved for me over time. It wasn't just taking care of wounds and exterior things. It was now getting more of the whole person. And that's what appealed to me about family medicine. And I was very lucky to have gotten into Harvard Med School. And they gave me an opportunity to travel during my school years to spend time in Gabon, Africa. So I got to use my medical French and work in a the Schweitzer Hospital there in Lambarnay. Um, I also spent some time in La Paz, Bolivia, after taking an intensive course in Spanish, um, medical Spanish. So I ended up learning a lot of medical Spanish and we did this immersion program for three months in La Paz to cement that. And then I spent my residency in working in a clinic that was primarily Spanish speaking patients. So I got to really use that experience. And it was extremely valuable. Unfortunately, I don't get to use it much now, although I do have a few Spanish-speaking patients who come to see me and they have fun correcting my Spanish because I probably sound like a two-year-old. Everything's in the present tense or simple future. Um, But that's what I remember, how to conjugate. I keep using those kinds of terms, but they they get it and we have fun communicating. It was a marvelous experience and I don't think I could have gotten that many other places. And then I met my husband in residency in Minnesota and he happens to be from Asheville. (laughs) So we eventually ended up here uh, when we had our son and, and we wanted to be closer to grandparents. That's a terrific story. I was just thinking when you said you were working in La Paz, I know that La Paz has the highest airport in the world, 14,000 feet. You land in La Paz and then you travel 2,000 feet down to mm-hmm. the to the city. I was there once. I only was there for just a brief while, but I do remember flying into that airport. Mm-hmm. On this show, I've often had writers and journalists and poets, and I now have you as the physician. And then it it was really kind of fun to hear that you were a journalist to to start Mm -hmm. out. And your first patient was a patient who had leprosy. So you started out with a rather complicated proposition, and you were able to take inspiration from an ancient disease that has followed us all along the way. Mm-hmm. That's powerful when I think about it, because you think back on the old stories, the biblical stories of mm-hmm. the people who had leprosy were struggling back then. I'm not even sure what leprosy is. How does that work? It is a type of infection that destroys your nerves, and then everything else kind of starts falling apart. 
I also spent some time in Thailand during my residency in Chiang Mai, where they had still a lot of leprosy in pockets. And there was a hospital devoted to caring for the people with leprosy. And there were physicians there who were amazing. I mean, they did incredible things. Eventually, the tips of your fingers, the tips of your nose, the ears, the most extreme parts of your body start falling apart and the skin drops off and increased risk of infection. And one of the telltale signs was people would lose the nerves in their brows. So they could not raise their eyebrows or sometimes they couldn't even blink. There is a good treatment for it now. There are medications for it. So people do not have to go to the extremes. If they're caught early enough and diagnosed early enough, they can avoid all those horrible consequences. But way back when it first was around, nobody understood it and, and people would just start deteriorating. And it was something that was very transmissible with touch, not by being in the same room with anybody, but physically touching somebody could infect you. It was misunderstood. And so leper colonies were set up to keep them separate from other people. It was a very, it's a distorting disease, but it's also an alienating disease. And there are a lot of misinformation still out there about that disease. And we still had leper colonies in the America when I came back from India and I heard about leper colonies in, in our country. I'm like, wow, we still have those because there were some people still who were living through those parts where they weren't caught in time to, to prevent some of the deterioration and the limb loss and all those kinds of distorting things that happen to your body. But those people were still there. They're still human. It was just amazing the kinds of phenomenal surgeries that some of the surgeons were doing. I was just blown away. There was a surgeon in Thailand. There was this young kid who had gotten blown up by a mine and he lost his arm. He still had the two bones. We have two bones in our distal arms and the surgeons rigged up his nerves so that he could use those covered now with skin bones, the two prongs he had as tongs. So he could actually move those bones and pick up things with his bones. It was like, I'd never heard of such a thing, but it was phenomenal. They were teaching this little kid to use what he had and be functional. So he could go on to earn a living and have a life. It was just amazing. And these were often sometimes volunteer surgeons who were coming from traveling from all over the world, donating their time. But there were also the dedicated surgeons who were running the hospital there and taking care of these people who were still living in these colonies, separated away from people because people were afraid to be around them. And these doctors are so courageous and, and so devoted. It was incredible. I, As a journalist, you learn the basic principles of journalism. And I know journalists have standards. They require two or three sources. They check their facts. They never go to press. If they feel like anything is in doubt, they have to be absolutely certain they have the goods, if you will, and more than one source for the proof. How have you been able to use your journalistic skills in your medical practice, or does that come into play? Oh, I think it's critical. I think I still do a lot of writing. I mean, I probably write longer notes than most of my colleagues. I can't abide just phrases. I, I have to finish my sentences. <laughs> a lot of the notes I read are just little tidbits, scattered phrases. I can't bring myself to do that. Just my writer's training won't let me. But the more important thing is people. I've always been curious and interested in people in, in their experiences. I respect that they have very different experiences than I do. I love to hear where they're from, what they've gone through. 
It helps me empathize with them and understand what might be affecting their health. But I learned to do that as a journalist. Uh, again, I, I was very shy, probably wouldn't have been brave enough to ask all the questions I do. When you're talking about a body and people are very self-conscious about their body sometimes, I have no qualms about very comfortably and calmly asking them about their sex lives and what's going on with those things and everything that's working that might be embarrassing for them. We talk about hemorrhoids, we talk about hair loss, we talk about anything concerning them. And when I ask those questions, it normalizes it for these people and makes them feel less like, oh, this isn't that, that weird. She asked me about it. So obviously it's something that she's seen before. And I don't try to make any exasperating, like, oh my God, kind of responses because that puts people off too. I just, I want to be able to open those little corners up because those little things can make a difference in somebody's life and how they feel about themselves. Things that are embarrassing can cost somebody their lives. I had a patient who had been on immunosuppressants for a long time. And I remember this gentleman and he would never let me do a prostate exam on him. He was embarrassed. It turned out that he had these huge anal warts that came from this immunosuppressive drug that allowed that virus to just blossom. And he had let them get so large that they became a cancer. You know, I had asked him numerous times, but I respected his face and he did not want me to do that. And finally he said, I have to see somebody about this. And I said, well, I, I can't refer you with, I don't know what I'm referring you for. So you're going to have to let me look. And it was the most amazing and awful. I've never seen such huge warts. They were like cauliflowers. And I don't know how he was sitting, honestly. So yeah, most people don't want to hear about that. And most people, obviously, he was very embarrassed and self-conscious about it. But I wish he had told me sooner when they were smaller, he could have gotten those removed and not ended up having cancer. And it eventually did kill him. He did have kidney failure and it, he was a lung transplant patient. So he was on immunosuppressants for a very long time. And he was just an amazing man. He had the most amazing bass voice and he was a kind of an actor and performer. So it was really sad that he did not feel comfortable early enough that I could have helped him sooner. When I first started getting my yearly physicals back in my late 30s, maybe 37, I came to you when I was maybe 42, 43. I'd been with another physician prior to that in the same practice you were in. And then when you mm -hmm. entered the practice, uh, you took over where he left off. My idea was to build a file of facts over a long period of time with one person turned out to be you. And because of that file and all of those facts, I believed, and it proved to be true, that I could keep up with everything without losing track of my health trajectory. And I was always happy that did that. It occurs to me now, working with you, you were doing the journalistic investigation of my system I didn't think about that until you re talked about your journalism, but mm -hmm. you've always probed journalistically. What's this? What's that? Why this? Why that? Tell me more. I'll double check that. Let's test this. Let's find out if that is actually true. Let's keep the dates in order. That worked really well for me out of the, out of the gate. And then you mentioned prostate cancer. I've never been shy about letting you examine me. If you think there's a place to examine and needs to be looked at, I'm fine. Go examine it. <laughs> and all of that said, I remember when you 
told me during one of our examinations, you of course probably don't remember this because you see so many people, but you said, oh, I think your PSA may be a, a little more elevated. We should monitor it. It's at 2.3 and it was at 1.9 uh, two years ago. So it seems to be moving a little bit. I didn't understand that one, two, three, four degrees from 1.9 to 2.3 was as significant as it was. I didn't monitor it all that much. I thought that'll be fine. Dr. Twarden is taking care of me. Mm -hmm. Of course, I needed to take some responsibility for myself as well. So when I returned for my next yearly physical, which I had extended for three or four months because I'd been traveling, mm -hmm. I recall you came into the office and you weren't smiling as much. And you had noticed because of my regular blood test, which you insisted mm -hmm. I get, that my PSA had jumped dramatically, which gave you the sense that I likely had prostate cancer, which I did. Mm -hmm. And I was able to catch it in time. Mm -hmm. And to this day, you always say, your PSA is great. So mm -hmm. I hear your enthusiasm because I was able to catch it. And the reason I caught it was because you monitored it. Did you save my life? Did I save my life? Did Scott Donaldson, the urologist who did the surgery, save my life? Did David DeHole, the other doctor who's Scott's partner? Probably all of the above. Mm -hmm. So I was really thankful that I was able to have my surgery and was grateful that you were able to diagnose it. I wasn't shy. I'll bet you run into a lot of men who are shy I'll bet you that prostate cancer is more of a problem for a lot of men because of their psychological resistance to revealing it than the actual disease that can be caught early and solved. Mm -hmm. Well, again, part of the job is translating uh, information in a way that's understandable to people. And that's another thing I learned in journalism. Part of it is being able to communicate in a way that people will understand and even gather information in a way that people can understand and taking information from patients who are describing some symptoms and trying to pin down exactly what's going on and then do an exam that confirms or contrasts or tries to figure out what they're coming from. It's part of the fun for me, this um, puzzle that is presented sometimes and it can be challenging because not everything is straightforward, but some things like what you went through. I mean, the, the little blips, sometimes they are nothing. And some patients who have that little change in their PSA, it is just a, a little blip and it goes back down to normal, or it could be a sign of inflammation of the gland and that's fine. It could be a sign of just aging because the gland gets bigger. So it produces more of this enzyme that we can detect in the bloodstreams. It isn't a straightforward shot, which is why maybe I didn't say you have prostate cancer. I had to say, it's a potential. It could be nothing. It could be just getting older, inflamed, or it could be something worse. But you need to, to figure this out because it could get much worse. And there was a time where the studies showed that the PSA is too confusing and people shouldn't check it anymore. My patients were already trained by me that I checked it for them every year. So they still wanted me to check it. I kept checking it because I thought we don't have anything better. Until they come up with something better, this is at least one thing that I can use to say, okay, maybe we need to pay attention to this. And maybe you need to have a discussion with the urologist about what options you have to explore this further. And you decide what you wanna do. 
the idea was that there were a lot of people who had these little fluctuations in their PSA, and then they would be put through all these procedures, biopsies, ultrasounds, very expensive, and sometimes had some consequences of infection and hospitalization just because of the biopsies. So they said, why are we doing this to men and making them all scared? And I just try to have that conversation saying, there are a lot of things this could be, but we should make sure it's not anything serious like it was in your case. And you did see a urologist promptly. He told you what you could do and he let you lead, but also guided you as to what he would recommend. And there you were, you got your biopsy and you knew that this was something serious, not something to slough off and postpone. And then you did what you needed to do to take care of yourself and made those decisions. But it's a, it's a decision. It's a team effort. I don't get stuff without you telling me. <laughs> um, I, there are certain things I can detect. Sometimes I can detect a murmur that you may not have felt. And before it gets to be a problem, I can say, let's do an echo and find out what's going on with this. But there are lots of things that I wouldn't know if you weren't willing to share with me or I didn't ask or take the time. And that's where the time factor comes in. And I like to spend more time with my patients. And unlike a lot of uh, doctors do a full, what we call review of systems. I go through every part of your body and ask you all these questions, which some people say, oh, it's too many questions. I can't stand it. For me, I want to be sure that I'm hitting on all the high points and making sure that you know that when I'm asking these things, that these things are abnormal. So if you're having them, you should be telling me these things um, and not hiding them or keeping them away. And when I had that problem with my prostate, well, that was about 10 years ago, maybe going on 11 now. I acted within three months from the time you told me I should act until the time I had my prostate removed. It was three months. So I think it was early January or mid-January. And by April 1st, my prostate was gone. And Scott had done the operation and did it very well, enough so that he did get all the cancer. And the day after I've had my surgery, I started writing a, a three-month memoir titled The 100 Days. I am getting ready to publish that book, and it chronicles the 100 days after cancer. So it's not really about my cancer. It was actually a really great, successful surgery, and all I had to do was heal. So it was the healing process over that 100 days. So you're in the introduction of this book, and I'm really happy that it's going to be coming out soon. So we're back to journalism. In a sense, <laughs> I have done a journalistic report on my experience mm -hmm. with prostate cancer. And I so often tell my friends to go get their prostate checks, mm -hmm. and they tend to just, eh, I'll get it sometime. It's not a big deal. And I don't say much about it, but I know it's more than a casual proposition, and yet they seem to schlaf it off, and I try to encourage them to do it. And I, I know you do, do that, too, with mm -hmm. people that you meet. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah, it's a, I enjoy the teamwork because it is not just me in the room. It's me trying to help you understand your body and understand what's going on with you for my benefit to, to help guide you. So... A lot of my questions are geared towards getting to know you and what's going on with inside of your body, as well as what things are impacting you, yeah. your situation. And speaking of vigilance, I think it would be remiss of me to leave this conversation without at least touching on what we've been experiencing for the last two years with COVID-19. As a physician, you're right there on the front lines with it. 
I've had all three of my vaccinations, my booster. Okay. I'm telling you that. You can put that in my file. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've also had conversations with people who completely resisted. So I want your take on COVID-19 and your take on vaccinations and how, you, how you've been dealing with that. It's disheartening in a way to see and hear people that do not trust science and don't trust the agencies that we rely on in our country to deliver that information. Our public health departments are being attacked. A lot of the public health physicians are leaving their jobs because protesters are showing up at their house at all hours and, and harassing their families and threatening them. It's like you're hurting the messenger. Again, this isn't a journalistic thing. You're killing the messenger. We are just delivering the information and trying to get help to people. And to be attacked for that and threatened for that is really alarming to me. I still have patients who refuse to get the vaccine. Um, they are more afraid of the vaccine than they are of the illness. They are not willing to acknowledge or even consider the research that's coming out of the World Health Organization, the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, none of those things matter to them. Yet they are taking the word of some stranger on Facebook or Instagram where they have no idea who that person is, no idea where these stories are coming from. The way that these algorithms work on the social media is if you hit on one story, suddenly you're going to get 10,000 stories of the same thing. So here I have very intelligent people in healthcare sometimes, CNAs who are taking care of very sick people who are not vaccinated because they've been reading these things online about all the horror stories that can happen to you if you get the vaccine. If you look at the tiny percentage of harmful effects from this vaccines, um, there is risk, there's always risk, but very, very, very few people, zero, zero, 0.0001% of patients have had major problems with the vaccine that have either cost their life or caused them some hospitalization because of uh, something with the heart or something like that. When you look at what the, the illness has done, it has killed millions, 5 million people around the world. The odds are so much worse when you're facing the infection than the vaccine. It just boggles the mind that somebody who understands the world and respects science in some degree or other, can't see that. It's become so politicized, it's a sad thing. This isn't a political issue. The virus doesn't care whether you're red, blue, or green. It wants to a host. So if you're not vaccinated, you're a great host. If you're not taking precautions and hygiene and masking when you're around strangers who you don't know where they've been or when you're traveling and you're in big groups indoors, you're a host. That's all the virus sees. And once it gets in, it gets to do whatever it wants. And it mutates so quickly because especially this Delta variant reproduces beyond what we know. I mean, it has it is so rapid. And that's why now when we see patients in the ER and the ICUs, we're seeing patients who last year when they when they came in, they didn't know where they got it. This year, they say, oh, yeah, we were at a family thing, and now my cousin had it, and my brother had it, and now I have it, and now my whole family has it, because it has spread that quickly. It's mostly people who have not been vaccinated who are ending up in the ICUs, and we're spending a lot of money on those last weeks when people are dying, and they're hooked up to machines, and they never make it out. And it's sad. I mean, my husband is an infectious disease doctor. He works in Asheville, and 
He has taken care of pregnant people who have died because they were afraid to get the vaccine, even though it was recommended. So they've lost not only themselves, a husband has lost their wife and their newborn that will never have a chance. It, it is sad when people don't see reality or don't want to listen. I understand the fear. It is a newer vaccine, but it is an amazingly effective one. And I think it was not as rushed as people seem to think it was. We all concentrated. To me, it's a proof of what we are able to accomplish if everybody's working together. And that's the one thing I must give to Trump. Uh, hats off to him for coordinating all this or allowing it to happen and fueling all that interest around the world to develop these vaccines. When we work together as a universe, we can accomplish a lot. It's this disparity that is tearing us apart and is really destructive. I respect people from all walks of life. I feel I can learn from anybody. I have a lot to learn. And I was never a Trump supporter, but I agree with you. I think he did the right thing when he gave the green light for all of that research. And I've often thought that the research was queued up. People have been doing COVID research on the flu for years. And then you couple that with warehouses the size of the football fields with computers and thousands and thousands of scientists. It's a wonder they took so long to develop it. I think it was slow given how many people were working on it. Back in the day, you maybe would have a team of 20 or 30 people working on a vaccine. Now, probably had 100,000 scientists trained at your level and above to do the same work. Part of that is the safety requirements, you know, for when you develop something, you have to test it on a lot of people. So you have to recruit a lot of people and these are human subjects. So you have to get all these approvals. There, there's a process. We don't like to use people as experimental animals. That takes a long time and you have to watch over time. That's what takes the time. They may have had the, the vaccine sooner, but they had to test it and they had to make sure it was safe and they had to get volunteers who say, okay, you can test it on me. I don't care. That's hard to come by. We, we can't even get some people now, even knowing that it's safe to volunteer to get it. So uh, you can imagine how hard it was to recruit hundreds of thousands of people to test this on before it was even you know, well-studied and well-known. Now we have a lot of data and they've tracked a lot of people have gotten the vaccine all over the world. And we know they're safe, but it's it's still a struggle to convince up some people that it is. We have arrived at the top of the time together, top of the hour. And I appreciate <laughs> you taking the time out of your busy day to spend a little bit of time with us. So how do people get in touch with you? You have a website. Liz Twarden at TwardenFamilyCare.com is my email address. The Twarden Family Care is my website. I get most of my patients from word of mouth, to be honest. Uh, people just spread the word. Asheville is kind of a little small town that way. Well, Dr. Elizabeth Twarden, who goes by Liz, thank you for spending this time with me and with our listeners. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So there you go, my friends, my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Twarden, my family practice doctor. In the interview, you heard me mention my poetry book, the poems I wrote starting on the first day after my surgery and carrying on for a hundred days. Of course, that was a little over 10 years ago when I wrote those poems, and now I'm revising them, getting ready to submit them to three a Taos Press. I'm happy these poems are going out in the world on a fairly larger scale than when I first wrote the book and self-published the pieces. I have had a fair number of readers over the years that said, hopefully with this new approach, the material will get out further and further to people who will benefit from reading it. 
while I call the pieces in the book poems, you could also say they're little poetic memoir vignettes that have some poetics in, in them. For example, on June 18th, 79 days away from my surgery, I wrote a little piece called Bleeding Madras. You may remember the Bleeding Madras shirts people wore years ago, and they're still on the market now. Very colorful, lots of different, lots of different bright and shiny patterns on the, on the shirts. I used to really love the, love the Bleeding Madras shirts. I would iron them and get them ready to go. So here's the piece I wrote on the 79th day after my surgery. And as you might guess, it's titled Bleeding Madras. You can buy $100 shirts for $10 at the Goodwill store on 3rd Avenue. I've always worn loose-fitting extra-large shirts, although I've downsized since I'm slimmer now. Not as slim as I once was when I wore my medium button-down Bleeding Madras shirt into my 10th grade typing class where I learned the keyboard from Mrs. Myers, who was four months pregnant and worried sick over her husband, who was on the front lines in Vietnam. During my high school years, Madras shirts were marvelously muted and dustily well-bred, guaranteed to bleed and fade, the magazine ad said. Yesterday, while I sorted through the shirts at Goodwill, I remembered how my Madras jacket glowed in the junior-senior prom under the glitter ball spin that night Carol and Shope and I slow-danced to Bruce McTaggart's band covering a rock-and-roll version of Strangers in the Night. So that was poem 79 titled Bleeding Madras. One of the things I'm doing with these poems to make the book more beneficial, serviceable for people who read it at the end of every every piece I'm adding a question that will give the reader, and maybe that reader will be you, an opportunity to think about and maybe even write about something that was mentioned in the poem. For example, the question that follows Bleeding Madras on June 18th, poem number 79, question is, do you think about what you wear or do you just slip on your socks and walk out the door? Do you think about what you wear, or do you just slip on your socks and walk out the door? Now, of course, everybody would have a different answer to that question, and certainly I'm sure you do. I like to think about what I wear. I like to think about the colors. I even like to think about what kind of socks I slip on before I go out the door. I have different colored shoes. I sometimes will wear shoes from a company called Allbirds, and the shoes are blue, made out of merino wool. So the answer to the question is, yes, I do think about what I wear, and your answer will be different from mine, of course. This book wouldn't be possible without Dr. Elizabeth Twarden's diagnosis early on of my prostate cancer situation. So I'm glad that I was able to bring this to light for you. I think what Dr. Torden is talking about is very important. I still call her Dr. Torden, even though I do also like to call her Liz. But she really brings a sensibility to the process of health that I've always enjoyed. She's, she listens, she's sensitive, and she finds answers based on the scientific approach and the intuitive emotional approach as well. And thus, 
I had my diagnosis, I do encourage you to get your physical. Make sure you're current on all of your diagnostic approaches so that you don't have to look over your shoulder, that you can go on and live a vital, happy life without, without any stress, or at least minimize the stress. So I really do appreciate you tuning in to all of my shows, and I, I do hope this one most especially has given you some good stuff to think about. And on that note, I'll say thanks for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. It Thank you, Walter Parks, for the theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to reach out to Walter. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. Could not do this without you. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com, I would love to hear from you. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And if you'd like to join me on Saturday mornings for uh, my regular writing gathering with my collaborative partner, Allegra Houston, it's called Imaginative Storm Writer Prompt, Writing Prompt of the Week. So we would love to have you on that call. ImaginativeStorm.com. You can always go there and find the link at the top of the fold. And once again, thank you ever so much for taking some time out of your day to listen to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it, and I hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.